0: This is State of Demand
1: Gen. Hey everyone, welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. This is your host, Chris Walker. We're about to get into an episode I did as a guest on the B2B Founders Podcast. Um, really interesting insights here. Dove into a lot of topics I talk about a lot, but kind of went in a couple new directions kind of figured out some unlocks of how to explain some stuff so if you need to get a little bit of insight on attribution get a little bit of insight on your mqls get a little bit of insight on how to communicate those things differently to executives there might be some gold in this episode for you to help you kind of get people on board with moving into a new strategy and so um, some interesting stuff in here i hope you like it and now to this episode
0: Hey, good morning, Chris. Welcome to the uh, podcast. What's up, Brett? Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. No, man, it's my pleasure. Like I said, I've been following your content for a while. I love what you're doing on LinkedIn, which makes sense with what your business is, which we'll get to here in a second. But like I said, I've been a big fan, so I've definitely been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I think folks are going to get a lot of value from hearing how you're, I don't know if you position is disrupting the B2B marketing space or maybe refining it, but we'll get into that in a second. So before we get too far down that path, why don't you share with the audience a little bit about your background and what you and Refine Labs
1: are are working on these days? Great. Hey, everyone. I'm Chris Walker. Um, I run a marketing consulting firm focused on fast-growing B2B SaaS companies called Refine Labs. We've been able to grow quickly. We work with some of the industry leading brands that you probably know about inside of companies that sell to finance or marketing or sales or construction or nonprofits. Or we, we cover a lot of different verticals as well as different like buyer personas. Um, but a little bit of background about about me and I'll keep it short and just to a couple of the key things. One, I studied engineering in college, which is very unique for a for a marketer in this type of industry. And I think it gives me a really, really interesting look because I look at the entire revenue generating process as a system, which is what it is. You put things into it, you, you execute processes against it, and you get stuff out. And so when you look at it like a full system, not siloed marketing, SDR, sales, customer success, and you look at it a full system, you start to see different things than if you just look at your specific part of the process. And so I think that's an advantage for me. The next one. So I spent the first five years of my career after studying engineering inside of product management, talking to customers, specking products with engineering, building business cases about whether or not we should build the product. How are we going to differentiate? How are we going to message? What are we going to roll out in a beta? What are we looking for? How are we going to survey people? All of these different what I would call strategic marketing functions that a lot of people that move into downstream demand generation have never done and don't understand. And when you understand that component of strategy, it makes your execution significantly better. And so that's the second part. And then the, the most recent, like three to five years of my career before I started this company, I worked, that did, did, did demand generation inside of venture funded companies. Um, and so when I did those things, I used my previous experience And I started to run the playbook. I would go onto the blogs and I would search and be like, how do I, you know, nurture prospects? And then HubSpot would give me some blog about their seven step email sequence. And then I would build it with great content and I would run it for six months and I measured the results. And I was like, wow, this stuff doesn't really work that well. And I would run the gated eBooks and I would do these things. And then... I made a black and white decision and I was trying to scale this program up to millions of dollars in budget. And I went back to the CEO and I was like, this is what we're getting. And you don't get any more budget. You change your strategy. And so I changed the strategy to align on ungated content. I was running account based marketing programs at hospitals in 2016 and through the next 18 months, generated millions of dollars of revenue for that company and for marketing's contribution from zero to over 33% of total revenue was coming over that period of time, which drove the growth of the company and eventually IPO'd. There was one part of the story that I missed for people that I want to get in there is in in the 2013 to 2016 timeframe, I started two e-commerce companies inside of my bedroom. I just wanted to do it. I mainly did it to learn. Both those companies grew to, to, you know, mid, low to mid six figure um, annual revenue range. And the key, like the key of that was not making money, it was learning. So I learned I understood supply chain. I understood um, a PL. I understood tax, tax implications. I understood what Nexus means and those different things. But most importantly, when you're trying to grow a company and you're using your own money and I'm trying to sell a $60 blanket and it cost me $24 landed and I know how much money I can spend to acquire that customer in order to still make a profit. And you start running ads, you find out very, very quickly what customer acquisition cost means. And that is something that you, I feel like you need to learn that with your own money. I scraped my knees. I built Amazon search ads, broad match, wasted a thousand dollars, got no customers. Will never make that mistake again. When my customer hands me one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month, and so a lot of people don't haven't scraped their knees with their own money, therefore they don't feel the pain of those mistakes. And so all those different experience points put together, I think give me a very unique way of looking at uh, demand generation and marketing that other marketers don't use. Yeah, I think that's, well, great intro and thank
0: you for that. And it makes a lot of sense, right? I kind of share that passion of the entire ecosystem of revenue, not just, you know, sales, marketing. And I grew up and I had the unique opportunity to kind of run each of those functional areas at different companies. So I saw what worked, what didn't work, and it's those handoffs and the, you know, the marketing qualified lead may be my least favorite metric in the the world these days. Currently ruining companies everywhere. It's just it's inefficient. So uh, great pivot point. So when you started your company, I think you gave us a little background to where you saw the opportunity. What was, was it? Was that the gap in the marketplace? You said, you know, I can help more companies if I start my own agency. What was kind of the the
1: flashpoint for that? So there was there was two. So first. I did all the common playbook stuff and I measured it and I got the results. I figured out better things to do when I realized that that wasn't working. I understood how to measure it, how to do it and how much better it was. And then when that company IPO, I left and I started looking out into the world and was like, wow, everyone runs all the stuff that I tried that I know doesn't work. And I know that this works better. And so there was a clear opportunity and the clear opportunity is, is purely driven on removing assumptions that are no longer true. And so a lot of people have assumptions in their mind which drives their marketing, which are no longer relevant. And so I think that was a, a huge opportunity or a huge opportunity for us. The next thing, is that when I went out, when that company IPO'd and I was going out to find a job, I went to companies and I was interviewing for VP of marketing, VP of demand, director of demand inside of these companies. And I presented the strategy that a lot of people now really enjoy. And a lot of companies get a lot of success from now that we implemented and every company didn't want it. And I'm not interested in going to my third venture funded company and doing shit that I don't believe in. And so instead of doing that, I decided that, I would talk about the things that I believe in and attract people that also believe in those things. And therefore there wouldn't be this friction of me needing to convince the CEO that you can do LinkedIn organic and get results without attribution. And so those are the, those are some of the reasons. And to be honest, as I look back on it now, like I don't, I don't belong as an employee of a company. It's just (laughs) not, it's just not me. And so it took me a while, but now that I'm here, like, you know, that's just not me.
0: Yeah. No, I hear you. And you know, I'm probably double the journey you were that it took me to figure that out a few years ago, but I say better late than never. And, oh, yeah. you know, you know, kind of the same passion for changing the way it's done. Right. Cause I tend to work obviously more with the B2B startups and as they're starting to grow, trying mm-hmm. to help them avoid a lot of the pitfalls <laughs> that more yeah. legacy or older companies, especially around revenue generation make. And
1: you know, but it's just, there, it's really the, the constraints and the, assumptions that are no longer true inside of businesses that prevent them from changing. I was lucky inside of that company that the marketing team didn't do a lot of demand gen. They didn't have an MQL target. They didn't have uh, existing revenue targets. They didn't know how to measure it. You know what I mean? And so when you actually have a blank slate, you can do things that actually work. Yeah. And know most companies, most marketers get in there and they have a machine that they need to be a cog in that machine, even if the machine is, doesn't work. And so... Um, for a lot of companies, I have empathy for it. You literally can't change. You can't. You can't do it without buy-in. And and then as you, I like working with companies in a certain stage because once you get too big, you're stuck, right? And so I'm very focused on at least for our work in this kind of like 10 to 100, maybe 10 to 250 million range of ARR. Um, and then I we impact and influence a lot of people on the lower end through our content. Um, and so. At those stages, you actually can take a step back and rebuild it the right way before you're too big and you're stuck. And there's so many constraints, that you can't change anything. And so um, I think it's just about thinking critically about what's happening right now and making a black and white decision on whether or those are the best things to still do. And that's the way that I, that's the way that I look at it. I go into companies and they're doing things. And I tell, I tell them very clearly it's like the data shows that I know that you got 4,000 leads, but you got zero customers from this and you wasted a lot of money and you wasted a lot of your SDRs time and you wasted a lot of your AEs time. It would actually be better to just completely stop doing this. I know that you feel like you need this content syndication part in your marketing mix, but you literally don't need it. Yeah. There's, there's so much we can
0: unpack here. And I think initially, um, you know, one of the things I posted not too long ago is like if if your legacy B2B company, you've know, been around more than 15, 20 years, is still talking about sales and marketing alignment, you're in big trouble. Right. And I think you kind of indicated, man, if you're that big, it's gonna be super hard for you to change unless you get to the C level that kind of breaks down. What are what are some of the biggest let's let's talk big and work our way back? So what are some of the biggest barriers preventing these companies from transitioning and driving it through a demand in a digital strategy like you guys work with.
1: Yeah, so what's split it off between the companies that work that we work with and just the general market and I'm just going to talk right. about the general market. Um, the the things that that they struggle with is that they ha- there's two competing forces. There are goals and thing and th- and budget restrictions and things that force you to do marketing a certain way. Um, meanwhile, there are plenty of other things better to do, but they can't figure out what the better things are to do because they need to spend all their time and all their money hitting the metric that doesn't matter. And so, and you can't stop doing the things that you're doing right now until you have an idea of what something better is going to be. And so there's a gap, a transition gap that you'll never be able to cross over that path because of how companies set up their marketing model, um, which is, which is sad Um, because I interact with enough companies, whether they're customers or not, I get, I would say probably 50 DMS a week on LinkedIn saying, I know that you just posted that thing about how Google AdWords doing it this way doesn't work. We do that. And it definitely doesn't work, but I have to do it that way because I need to get our CPA under $40 for our leads. And so like, it's very easy. Step one, acknowledge that the stuff that you're doing right now is not productive, is not working well enough. Until you acknowledge that there's no sense in doing anything differently. So look at the data. The data is very clear. Step two, change your goals. Once you acknowledge that it's not working and you're chasing the wrong metrics, you need to change the goals. And when you change the goals, then it creates freedom to do things that actually work. And then you need to have the patience to actually let the stuff work. And so people will fall. People, you'll lose people at every single step the stuff that we're doing is working. We're getting enough leads because we believe that leads is the right metric, even though it's not right. And then, um, you know, move down that chain and that's so getting through that entire process can be six to 12 months you 'll get you and turning off a lot of the stuff that you're doing right now that's not productive would have no impact on your pipeline and revenue maybe a little bit on pipeline because you can squeeze people in but on if you actually look at it a revenue very little impact to shutting all that stuff off meanwhile you can go and figure out what's going to drive your business over the next three to five years. Yeah, that's so good and so true. I mean, I think we talked a little bit of joked about marketing
0: qualified leads, MQLs, but I think attribution is another one of the killers of efficiency, right? Because you have to, while marketing touch, well, in theory, everything sales and marketing, they should both
1: touch it if you're doing it right, or they're coming straight to. Yeah, let's go deeper into this because I talk about this a lot, but I haven't looked at it in that way and I haven't clarified this. Like attribution for me is not marketing against sales. I talk about... uh, like i talk about attribution inside of marketing channels which is what ruins mar- what ruins a lot of marketing it's not about whether or not you can prove the people that are stuck trying to prove that their influenced marketing revenue did something are often not doing effective marketing and that's why they need to look at like this person clicked on my email and then nine months later they bought something. So therefore we could influence that revenue. And when people chase that type of stuff, you're, it's very obvious that the actual marketing that they're doing is not effective. But when you act the problem is this, the, that CFOs and CEOs have been brainwashed to think that you need attribution at the channel level and you need attribution at the channel level for intent performance marketing channels, And so the first advertising channel that emerged inside of digital in the early 2000s was Google AdWords. It's an intent-based marketing channel. It's pure intent-based. I go in there and I need an HR tech tool to accelerate my onboarding. And so I type in HR tech tool to make my onboarding go faster. And then I hit enter. And then if you sell that HR tool that makes my onboarding go faster... You can put the ad in front of me and then I click on it and I convert and you have direct attribution to that because it was pure intent based. But the platforms that have emerged over the past decade, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, like those types of platforms are not intent based. I do not have intent to buy your HR tech tool when I'm on there. Even if you're trying to retarget me, there's no intent there. I did not log in to go there and buy your stuff, right? And so because people have been Uh, accustomed to measuring Google the way that it's it's measured. Now they're trying to measure all of the social channels, which are very different platforms with very different intent levels and much just overall a different channel and using them and measuring them just like Google, which is why it's completely broken. And so especially, and when I say this, like there are transactional e-commerce, there are product-led offerings where using Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and those types of channels like Google can work. But when you have an enterprise or complex B2B sale sale, that is sales led, where you actually have to give that lead to a salesperson, it is highly inefficient. It is very, uh, it, the customer acquisition costs are very high and it's very unproductive. And so, because marketers have been forced to measure LinkedIn, like I we we clear, this, clear the deck on this with our customers before they ever start working together. But companies before that are like, I can't spend, another $5,000 this month on LinkedIn, unless I can prove that we got leads from it. And so when you have to prove it, that's the only way that you can do it. You have to give someone an ad and you have to try and get them to fill out your form. And then you're going to, and then you only have two options. You put them in a nurture sequence or you have an SDR chase them around when they're not interested in buying, which honestly could be doing more harm than good to your buyers. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I lived in that
0: world, and I mean, most SDRs are tagged on activities, right? So, hundred dials, they have no interest in setting the the stage. To say, hey, when you are interested, we'll be here
1: for you. Yeah. It's like, all right, I'm on to the next one, right? And so, look at how look at how much has changed here. We have all of these different channels, which is the main way that people get information and communicate with people today on these platforms right? But they're being used in a way that has nothing to do with information. It's all based on conversion. And when you look at how um, overall B2B SaaS marketing mix is generated, they'll only use those paid channels that they can attribute. And they don't do a lot of the other things that are effective right now, because of lack of attribution, a podcast posting on LinkedIn every day, which is driving millions of dollars of revenue for our business and a ton of other businesses out there. A, um, some type of live event that we do, we do live events very often, but we don't measure them on leads. We use it as a way to create content for our podcast and for LinkedIn. And so there you know, companies wouldn't do an event like we do that. Like I just explained, because a lot of the people on our zoom would never be our customer, but they have questions just like the people that work at the the companies that are, that would be our customer. And so therefore we use that. I get to help them get to create content that people that's relevant to our buyer. And then we can do that, but they would be like, "Oh, we got a bunch of marketing managers in here, and we sell the CMOs, so forget this event," which is just a completely wrong way of looking at things. And so, attribution forces the wrong use of of a lot of advertising channels. It for it restricts the use of organic channels in awareness uh, in awareness mode, um, and I think it overall restricts innovation inside of companies because. Before you can think about experimenting with something, you have to figure out how you're going to measure it against your lead target. And what you should do is you should go and test it. You should go and try it. You should feel what it feels like qualitatively. You should feel on whether or not it was going to move the needle. You should look at what house, you know, figure out what happened when you did that. And then if you start working, if it starts working, then figure out how to scale and measure it. And so, like, if I started my LinkedIn, two years ago. And I was like, I made seven posts, seven days in a row. And I got nine likes and a you know, a couple got 20 and I got no leads. I would be in a B2B company. Someone would say, it's not, working. this isn't working. Yeah. Maybe it's now just... it's been to the tune of probably $6 million in customer acquisition through that channel for us over the past two years, which is crazy. And most people would shut it off, which is, It just makes me sick that people that about how people measure these things and restrict innovation inside of companies, which is probably one of the core reasons why I don't work in a lot of them. Yeah, they're not ready for you, right? Or it's not they're just they're just not they're they're just not not. they're not ready to innovate. They're ready
0: to run the machine that they've built. Do you see? I'm just curious your perspective on this kind of the return of the the chief revenue officer in the truest sense, where they own both sales, marketing, and customer success, so that you you eliminate some of those silos or traditional operating budgets. They're still going to have spend in each of them, but if you have one, as they say, one throat to choke, um, and yeah. you can spend those dollars across those
1: channels with is. Are we seeing any evidence of that? No. I I don't understand how this solves the issue, right? In, okay. in, pr- in practice, I don't see how this solves the issue, right? Because in, if without the CRO, the CEO is the stand-in chief revenue officer. True. Right. And so now you put a chief revenue officer in there, and who is that person? Ninety-nine Sales percent of people. N- no, ninety-nine percent of them are salespeople. Interesting. Not marketing okay. people. Right. And so, and the CEO is a salesperson too, most of the time, sales product or finance, very rarely marketing. And so you're not actually doing much different. (laughs) You're just putting somebody that's very sales heavy in a role and then having them oversee other functions. And the problem where this breaks down is that the person in that seat doesn't understand how to do marketing effectively. And so I see this as a huge risk for businesses because they're going to get driven to do less marketing that's effective. Yeah, no. And, and
0: one of the other things I've been kind of, this is creating a huge opportunity for startups and mid-sized companies that can get this right and drive into to new markets, right? So with that being said, what is, or what are some of the, I guess there's two paths. Let's take it back from, Hey, I'm a newer founder just starting. I don't have a ton of budget. I think you've already indicated LinkedIn and posting on LinkedIn is a, is a great way to, to kind of get started. What, what would be your recommendations to help get to the point where you can start to spend that money,
1: you know, on those, those different channels? Yeah. So, um, if you're, if you're a founder and you're trying to get stuff moving, I think the first step is to understand what you're good at. And so, um, some founders are good at product and suck at sales and marketing. Some, some founders are, um, pretty good at sales and suck at other things like engineering or different stuff like that or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's just acknowledge what you're good at. When I started this company, people told me to build a sales team. And I looked at myself and I was like, I'm a marketer i don't need a sales team right. right and so it's figure out what what is what's going to work for you because if you're a product engineering person and you don't know how to communicate with people and you don't understand how to use social networks or create content you're going to be spinning your wheels and most likely be unsuccessful for a period of time and so start with what do you think that you're good at and then start to build from there i think that the the ideal process for a founder to to build their company to 5 million ARR or whenever they decide to raise money or different things like that, is that the founder needs to start selling a couple deals. Initially, the founder needs to sell the the deals in. I think that the big mistake the companies make is the founder builds a product, raises $3 million, hires a VP of sales with no product market fit, no marketing, no brand. And that person, then you have an expensive VP of sales that's set up to fail, right? And so instead, founder sells deals, you understand, you get a very clear sense about product market fit. You get to talk to customers, you get feedback very quickly. Um, and then you prove to yourself that the market actually accepts your product and wants it. And when that starts to happen, I think that you add a VP of marketing first, a good one, because you can swing and miss on this badly. And so a VP of marketing that can that can build the brand, build a, um, like marketing messaging around it, have a website that's going, generate leads, The founder continues to sell into those deals, probably to a million RR. And then you bring up, you know, whatever it is, one, two, three million RR, then you bring in a VP of sales when you have a validated product market fit, targeting, and lead engine.
0: Now it makes sense. Cause I, one of the things that I've learned through the process, you know, I did some early research that showed, you know, two of the early thresholds is a million dollars in revenue, less than 10% of the companies get there. And then less than 1% actually get to 10 million. And then going through this process, interviewing founders that, you know, it took them three years, five years, 10 years to break through the 10 million mark. Every one of them said, well, it's not really a million dollars. It's when I couldn't sell into my network anymore. I yeah. couldn't figure out how to reach and grow beyond the people I knew. And guess what? Some of the founders founders found that figured it out. And many of them did not. And they either got out, out of cash
1: or whatever that happened. I recognized that when I had three customers, it's like if you, if you want to grow to grow a business, you need to have a scalable acquisition model. And just in my view, the most scalable, effective, cost efficient acquisition model in business today is content marketing with effective distribution on social channels.
0: Number one, it's the cost of doing business these
1: days, right? And if you don't do it well, it's it's just a cost, right? No. Yeah, the problem is that people don't people look at a lot of things as a cost of doing business. Taxes, even like SDRs for a lot of companies, is a cost of doing business. But they don't look at ad spend as a cost of doing business. They look at it as an expense that can be cut. And so I think that there's, for whatever reason, executives have accepted certain things that they need to do, or they need to spend money, or they should have in their company, and they scrutinize things that they don't understand or don't know, like building a having a videographer on staff to create content with you building a set to have a show that you publish once a week that goes live on linkedin to have a podcast that people want to listen to that talks about the changes in your industry or your for your persona companies scrutinize all of those things meanwhile because they can measure how many dials got made by the sdrs they and they've just accepted that that is the way the cost of doing business. And I think that deserves to be challenged. Um, And so those are some of the things that I see. Yeah, no, I
0: think it makes sense. And I used to manage SDR teams, so I get the uh, the value of it when you had to do cold outreach and but, you know, this day and age, you know, the one thing you could talk about consistently in your content is buyer intent. And I think that is such a critical factor that most people are not looking at it, I guess more traditional, you're still looking at the market the quality leads. You mentioned it following leads. But if you looked at it from a buyer intent and maybe the return of traditional branding that kind of went away in the early days of Google ads and Facebook mm-hmm. ads. It said, hey, everything is buy now transactional, but they don't know who you are. <laughs> you don't give them a yeah. path to find out where you are, it's gonna be really hard
1: for you to to scale a business, right? I've been calling it buyer intent because people understand what I mean, but this is really just having an empathy for your customer, right? Like I figured this stuff out when I would go into sales meetings in 2016 from a, to a cold meeting with a rep. And I would sit in there and just, I would listen for 45 minutes and I would understand what it felt like in a cold meeting. And then I would go into one where somebody said, Hey, could you have your sales rep come over here and show me this product? I'm really interested. Somebody at another facility down the road told me that it was really good. And then you go and sit in that meeting and you understand how different it is. And then you look at what happens downstream in the funnel to who becomes customers and who don't. And then you just say, I think we need to get more people like this because these conversations are going better and becoming customers. How do we do that? Right. And then all I did was I started to assess what are the differences between the person that understands the things that we talk about and asked us to have a sales rep versus the ones that didn't, what are the things that they don't understand? How do we, how do we get that information to them so that they understand it in a way where they want, not where we're forcing them into a sales conversation when they're not receptive to the things that we're saying. And so that was the, that was the difference. And then one of the things that I did to help a company back in 2016, now I just, I needed data to give to the executive team back then. And it's just obvious to me now, um, is we did a survey across, we were selling into hospitals. We did a survey across all these different hospitals with our target persona, director of respiratory therapy of, and both at even split of customers and non-customers with specific demographics of what hospital size and different filters we could slice and dice it in a lot of different ways. And the survey was about how they purchase respiratory technology, which there's a large category, right? There's a whole department around this exact thing. And how do you purchase? And so we went through and saw and we went through and saw like what you know how how do you prefer to discover products? What's the first thing that you do when you're evaluating new medical technology? Where do you look? Do you use these channels to learn? And you just go through the information. And the, the really interesting thing, when you buy medical technology, what are the things that you do? I research online, I connect with a colleague at another facility about their experience. I visit the website. And then I would like a demo. And over here, we're like, let's just shove people into demos, right? (laughs) which is completely misaligned with how somebody would buy anything today. And so because of the difference in how much abundance of information, there's two key factors here that are changing. One, the abundance of information out there that buyers have way more control over their process than they did 10 years ago. A major shift in who has the power inside of a buying process. The second one, is the complete shift in, in the ability to communicate of word of mouth between people that are peers. It is a massive insight for people. And so in 2008, when you wanted to buy a software product, it was much harder to get feedback from other people that used the product. There were not review sites, the revenue collective didn't exist. Um, you couldn't go onto LinkedIn and post something and get 10 comments from people that use the product that are just like you, you couldn't do any of those things. So what did you do? You went to Google and you found something. Right. And so, and so companies, marketing strategies are built around that world built around what's getting to search. And meanwhile, now people are doing these types of discoveries in other places that search doesn't even happen anymore for a lot of people. They discover something or they have a, they find a problem in their business. If there's a brand that's top of mind, they probably just go and buy it. If there's not a brand that's top of mind, they're going to, they're going to most likely pop into revenue collective or whatever community that they're a part of. They might post on LinkedIn. They're going to be able to ask a bunch of people in their network about it. And then they're going to make a decision. And so by understanding how much word of mouth is out there and how much it's driving B2B purchasing decisions more so than it was 10 years ago, if you start to lean into that, the way to have more people start talking about you is to do marketing well right? and create things that people want, which then can artificially create more word of mouth inside of the market where pe- more people that use your product have opportunities to tell other people that, that don't, where more people that might need something that you have are more open to asking people what their experience was in using it. And so I've been, uh, the marketing that we've been doing over the past five years is purely driven on how do we educate buyers and create more word of mouth in the market about the things that we're doing? What features are we announcing? What clinical trials came out? Um, what new integration partner do we just have? Like the, 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 the comm strategy around that is very dependent on the company, but you can really build that and just directly communicate with your customers in a way that's far more effective than the other channels that companies choose to use. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a little bit off topic, but I think that's
0: why there's so much value in enabling your customers post acquisition. Right. I know it's starting to shift. We're seeing the rise of customer success and more emphasis (laughs) on that. Yeah.
1: that? the rise of customer success is not happening fast enough. And it's a bolt on function right now with not enough resources to really get stuff done, man. Love it. Yes.
0: Yeah, because it comes back to your word of mouth. If somebody's going to reach out and they didn't have a great experience after they purchased
1: it, <laughs> you're not going to get that endorsement that you need. And it's have seriously as hard, right? Yeah. And, and companies are obsessed with sending, you know, a five hundred dollar gift basket to a prospect to try and get them into a demo, but would never do use that type of budget to make their current customers happy or more successful. And that process is broken, too. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah the two the two levers now that exist are effective marketing and highly effective product customer success yeah. the only the only two and if you uh, Oddly, I sort of start to include customer success in the product. It's, it's now part of your product, right? Customer success, the actual product experience, the materials and the content that help people think about strategy is all part of the product, right? And so the two things that matter today, the most for companies and the biggest, where the biggest opportunity lies is in the product and m- most likely the, the fringe of the product, the content, the success content, the strategy, the success, those types of things. And then effective marketing and everyone is too busy doing one-to-one hand-to-hand combat sales. Yeah, hundred percent
0: right. And I tell you your own business, but yeah, no, I, I'm seeing the exact same things and trying to avoid. You know, kind of that process. I interviewed the uh, founder of Penji the other day, and you know, they de- kind of turned around. You know, graphic design services. It's a mm-hmm. you know a subscription basically now for for what he knows is can be viewed as commodity based type product. They yeah. know, they do good work, but they built customer experience and success into their model, knowing that that was what was going to help differentiate the product but to your point yes it's it's still few and far between of the the companies that that do that and curious on another question because you had mentioned kind of the uh, the awareness and you know when i look at potential target customers right there's folks that know you know they have a problem you know all day every day how do you get those folks signed up but then there's kind of an a and a b that folks know they have the problem but don't know you then on the flip side know you but don't know they have a problem so is are you always balancing the combination of awareness and education or do you have something that you prioritize with the accounts or companies you work with to you know go
1: first here here's the one two three things we need to to do first? Education and awareness are the same thing. Okay. Right. So by executing proper education through content, you create awareness, right? Cause people see my videos enough and they read right in my, the profile of my thing, or right in this headline on LinkedIn, inside of the feed, CEO at refine labs. And they see that thing every day. And it says B2B growth, marketing, and revenue operations. And they're like, Oh, Because that company does this and then they see the content and they understand what we believe in and it builds credibility and it creates awareness. And so, um, I don't see those as two things differently. And I've been talking about a concept recently, which is that if you have a differentiated product that is messaged appropriately and targeted appropriately, and you build a above the funnel content strategy, that's based on education inside of social channels where you demonstrate expertise and drive your narrative that you actually need nothing in the middle. We spend no time in the middle of the funnel. Interesting. Now it makes sense. And we just do this work. More people know about us. They go to our website. We're highly differentiated. We have so much credibility because of the content that we put out, which is unique thought provoking and, and more effective than what's happening today. And they convert. And most companies are trying to think about how the people fit into the stage five of their buyer journey, um, and completely miss on people actually like consuming the content and getting value out of it. And so, um, I don't I when I executed properly, I actually don't see that them to
0: be different that's awesome No, it makes perfect sense and I, I think you're right there's still folks trying to pigeonhole people into functions with the, the buyer's journey or the sales enablement process and not looking at it from outside in and if you flip it over, you know you're true you may not need true salespeople you need folks that you know can solve problems and help you facilitate the process as they go through it which again is radically different and if you know a lot of the folks I work with spent 10 years in corporate they saw how I say it worked, (laughs) how they were doing it within that organization and trying to break down those that old mindset is maybe the biggest challenge for B2B marketers today. Right. Yeah.
1: And like I'm it's interesting because now that the business has attention and is growing at a certain rate, I can go and compare ourselves to growth rate of companies that are series A that just raised $5 million and we grow faster than them. We've raised no money We spend very little on advertising. We do no outbound sales. And the only person that sells stuff is me. And the sales, I wouldn't even call it sales. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so like, uh, just because I can see it in our business, the, the impact that it has. And if you look back and you're like two years ago, if we built, if we raised money and we built a team of five SDRs and account executives, we would be smaller, less differentiated, higher churn rates, way lower growth rate, way lower long-term upside. Yeah. And less profitable. (laughs) And and (laughs) definitely less profitable. And so those are the, like, it's, it's, it's just fascinating to see. And I'm really interested when this company continues to grow and we can look back at a 10 or a $20 million revenue mark and look back and be like, this is the new way to grow. Like I'm it's oddly starting to do it. And we do it with a lot of marketing, like our marketing that we do for ourselves is to show companies what they should be doing, just model the behavior that they should be doing. And odd, like it's a very effective in changing behavior. And so in the future, it's going to be showing companies how you can grow a business without doing all of the wrong things or doing a lot of the outdated things. Um, So that's the vision. Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I know we're starting
0: to run low on time and I want to be respectful of your time, but I do have one more question until I get to my final question, right. which is around, you know, thinking about, you know, the future of of the modern company. I oh, know I was going. I wanted to say, I know you work a lot with SaaS, but mm-hmm isn't this relevant for just about any type of B2B company that's out there to, to think maybe there's some nuances and some differences, but holistically, if you're looking at approach of go-to-market, mm-hmm. isn't your blueprint going to translate into all
1: businesses? So I, I built this model, uh, I built this model in medic med tech. Okay. And so we were selling into hospitals, a hardware, physical product. However, it was a capital purchase with a high cost of switching in an innovative product that had a recurring revenue model of disposables after afterwards. It was also a win and expand play where customer acquisition was very important. Customer acquisition success then drives 10 to 50x additional revenue long term through expansion. Right. And so the acquisition part was the most was the most challenging. And when we actually when I actually looked at the data, the company didn't look at the distinguish the differences between net and new and expansion revenue. And so we were growing expansion revenue really quickly, and we were not growing that new acquisition very quickly at all. And it was being masked because of the expansion revenue. And eventually that train's going to run out of runway. You got to figure out how to get new customers so that you can go and expand them and build your recurring revenue model. And so this can definitely work for a lot of companies. I think that it works the best for companies that have complex sales with an actual sales team um, and a model that is driven on on customer acquisition, which is everyone, right? Which is, which is, which is essentially everyone. Um, the recurring revenue model helps mainly on the mindset standpoint, um, because they think about it in customer acquisition costs, not in terms of gross margin, um, which is an interesting perspective. A lot of hardware companies don't think about, they think about marketing about how it eats into their margin, not about how it lowers their customer acquisition costs, which is fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, we work with mainly SaaS companies right now, because honestly, they're the people that see the most value in it. They're the people that want it the most. And a smart marketer will build their company around targeting an ICP that wants it the most, right? Like we could, I've tried to go and say, like, go to this company and say, hey, we built it for this company in 2016. And three years later, they IPO'd. And other companies worth $500 million on the, on the New York stock exchange. Okay. So we built this at one point and then you go to other medical technology companies that are $10 million and their CEO doesn't even know what Facebook is. Doesn't even know what, you know what I mean? And so I'm just not intre- I'm not interested in convincing people in other industries to do these things. I'm interested in attracting people that already believe in those things. So we can do great work with them. That's such a great point. Not chasing the. You know, people say, I get to know quicker, but it doesn't matter. What we, what we sell is, is forward thinking goes against all the quote unquote best practices that people have been taught by MarTech vendors and analyst firms. And so there's no sense in chasing people because you're going to get, you're going to lose almost every time. And so if you're selling a highly innovative, differentiated product category creation, you need to do these things. You need to attract the people that believe in your vision. Yeah, so I used to joke it was joining the resistance, right? Thinking about
0: growth differently. It's you know one person at a time, but it's starting to grow. And just mm-hmm. maybe one follow-on question to that: with the pandemic kind of forcing distributed workforces and remote, have you seen an increase in outreach to you saying, "Hey, what we're doing no longer works. My salespeople can't go on site anymore." <laughs> Is it started to see that, have you seen the shift at some companies yet or is it still the innovative companies are still leading pandemic or
1: not? Yeah, so the, the, sh- the short answer here is all of these problems existed in the company before COVID. Right. They just put a flat, COVID just put a flashlight right on all of the problems and a spotlight and just illuminated all of the things. But these problems existed, the CAC was just as high. Right. Right. And so um, I think that this accelerated change that happened, here are the dynamics that are happening right now. If your product wasn't, to, if you didn't have more increased market demand, like a Zoom, because of this situation, your outbound is most likely getting less effective. Mo- most likely getting less effective. And so that's one factor that's happening. The next factor is that because your outbound is getting less effective, the next thing that's happening is that your uh, events have gone away. And so a lot of companies love to spend 50, 50- percent or more of their variable marketing budget on events to get leads. And that can't happen anymore. And they didn't have anything else to do besides that. And so now they have a lot of leftover money, but first, before we get that far, the events are are gone. They didn't have anything in their marketing model else that was working. And so sales is becoming less effective and marketing is getting more pressure put on them to actually do something. And they don't know what to do because they haven't actually looked at new things to do so there's pressure coming and then they need to go and take that $2 million of event budget. Cause this is a VC backed SaaS company. And they're not just going to say, Oh, we'll take that $2 million and add it to the bottom line. That's not happening in these companies. You're going to take that $2 million and say either marketing, you can go and figure out how to make this work and drive revenue, or we're going to reallocate it somewhere else to drive the business. So that event money is moving into digital, most likely with consultants or third party partners that actually know how to execute it. And so there's been a, there's, it's benefited our business. I'm sure a lot of companies like ours have benefited from this situation. And, um, it's good because it's going to help a lot of companies move forward. It's going to be a growing pain for a lot of them, but it's the way that I think about it is if, if you didn't treat this like a growing pain and you didn't figure out how to innovate and move forward, then most likely you're going to go out of business in the next five or 10 years. Right now. And so,
0: hundred percent agree with you on that. And, you know, I think that's probably a good, a good way to end, but I do have one final, well, unless there's anything else you, you think we should have touched on today that we didn't touch anything else you want to add to it? I know this was great. A load of value. So I appreciate you spending the time and sharing it is all right. So the one last question, what is one thing you, Chris, would highly recommend? It could be professional. It could be personal. You know,
1: what's something you're doing today? So about three years ago, I uh, started a, a workout exercise routine in the morning. I, before that, I would work out in the afternoon. Um, and so, I when I started this company, I shifted it to the morning because I was working in different time zones. And if I did it at five, then it wasn't going to work. And so, I moved it to the morning. Another thing that was happening in the afternoon is if I worked out in the afternoon, oftentimes I couldn't fall asleep at a at a reasonable hour. And so, I moved it to the morning, starting at six a.m. and cur- currently operate at five a.m. Morning workout five days a week on the weekdays, and then I usually. Later in the day on on the weekends, but that um, that routine has been incredible in terms of my productivity. I was at my desk this morning at six forty five in the morning, uh, ready to do stuff, showered, worked out before most people were awake. Right, um, and so for people that are trying to maximize productivity uh, and also. Um, you know, squeeze a lot out of the things that they're doing. I believe that my ideas and the way my attitude and the way that I approach the world is also a lot better. And so it's not necessarily like a huge marketing insight, but it's been a life-changing insight for me. I've been doing it for three years. And so, um, would highly recommend, you know, get up, move your body, relax, do, do those things, build in a routine in the morning to get you fired up to, to go and execute. Yeah. So you're saying don't lead with coffee. <laughs> actually, it's been four. It's been four days of no coffee for me. I'm a, I'm historically a very big coffee drinker, for lack of a better way to say it. Um, and I'm trying I'm trying to cut it out. So it's been four days. I'm on uh, green tea. And so far, so good. A lot easier than what I initially thought. Yeah. Any withdrawals? I think I would have. No,
0: I've actually been yourself. fine. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's such good advice I had I was a morning workout and kind of shifted it to midday. But to your point, the midday gets away from you and I'm not getting the that's my next step. I like the morning, the content creation in the morning, but I, I need to bring the the workout back. Mm-hmm. So bring it back. Exactly, and like I mentioned earlier, you're, you've got some really good content. A follow on LinkedIn is is a must listen to if you're looking to, about growing a B two B company. I don't care if you're sales or marketing, wherever it is, you know, pay attention to what you're writing. And podcasts you've got, so you know, if folks do want
1: to learn more about you. What 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 other channels should we be? Yeah, sending? I mean, we're getting incredible. We're close to ten thousand subscribers. I think we might have passed that in the past couple of weeks. Like the podcast is really helping a lot of people. I get messages all the time from people new promotion started their own business got a way better job moved from sales into marketing like so many awesome stories it makes me happy and so i would encourage you to check it out it's called state of demand gen um available on apple or spotify we publish three episodes a week um, featuring people from a lot of different areas recruiting um uh like live Q and A's, events, people that work inside of the CMOs of B2B SaaS companies, um, salespeople, there's a lot lot of good variety of content in there, but it's rooted in how do you drive market demand to grow your company? Yeah. Which every BDB company needs. So again, mm-hmm. I highly encourage
0: you to check all of it out and I'll put all this in the show notes for easy link for folks. And, you know, Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I've been passionate about getting people to think differently about this. So it wasn't just that we thought alike, but the hell you can articulate it a hell of a lot better <laughs> and you're driving these results for a lot of companies. So, so appreciate the, at uh, the time today.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Brett. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Yeah, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Chris. You too.